Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hey folks and welcome to the Art of War as the big intro says, talking tactics and strategy with the best players in the game. Every week we talk to a tournament winner or a top player about an army that they have had success with at a big event. And we do it in two, count them, two great episodes. So episode one, we're going to break down the list, cover what the overall thinking is, the general way the list plays, the units that are in the list, the strategy the player had in mind, when they built the list, all of that. And even when they got to the table, what the thinking was there. Then in episode two, that's where it gets juicy. That's when we cover specific faction matchups, the detailed tactics. Episode two is for subscribers only, so please go sign up or you miss out on all of that. Here's the thing. I guarantee you will come out of this knowing more about how to play this army or how to play against it than you had at the start of this episode. Today, Grey Knights. I'm your host, Steve Joel. I am not a good player, so here to bring the real heat is the current number two ranked player in the ITC, the best sisters player in the world, multi-major and GT winner, and uh, just quietly worshipper of the four-armed emperor, John Lennon. How are you, my friend? Hello, hello, Steve. You know, we had several months that we could have recorded this when I was number one. We had to do it right after I went down to number two, huh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was looking at the ITC rankings and I was like, no, he slipped. I had this big intro on mine. But you know what? For for most normal mortals, getting to number two in the ITC would still be some kind of massive achievement. And you've got time. You've got time to take it back. Um, John, before we introduce our special guest, have you played against Grey Knights since the new book came out and how do you rate them absolutely i have uh, i've played against them three times and uh i gotta say i'm very very impressed uh the new gray knight codex has made a bit of a splash uh it's come out it's been hot it's won some events it's got a good win rate um and uh you know what it's brought back you know the the dreaded baby carrier that uh that all of us <laughs> all of us missed seeing on the tabletop for the last year uh, i'm really excited about it i love that gray knights came in like an army with a new dimension uh, it, it feels different than some of the other top armies in the game right now. And I love seeing any kind of diversity we can get on the top tables. So uh, I'm thrilled to see them back in action and uh, I'm thrilled to talk about them today. Yeah, man, the baby carrier is such a controversial model. You know what? I love it so much. And there, there are people I know who just hate it so much. But I considered getting a Grey Knights army just based on that. Our guest today is a former ITC champ. He's won almost everything there is to win. A pioneer of list writing and coaching in the recent pilot of a very cool Grey Knights list at the Las Vegas Teams tournament where he went almost unbeaten in the winning Art of War team, of course, Nick Nanavati. How are you? Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for the glowing intro. I'm doing great. I am so excited to be here and talking about the Grey Knights. Before I hand over to John to, to really kick things off, I, I do have to bring this up. I hear you need to give some credit to Mr. Siegler for part of this list, at least. Oh, let's let's do credit where credit's due. Uh, we were in a quite a list spiral as a team for my list in particular because I was flip-flopping between Custodes, Death Guard, Harlequins, Craftworlds, Grey Knights, Orcs, all within the span of seven hours or something. It was horrible <laughs> leading up to this team tournament. Yeah, And then Siegs came in like a shining, out of a shining light with his shiny Grey Knight fancy armor and his big brain tech servitor arms. And he was like, Nick, play some Grey Knights. We're going to do some hardcore coaching for three days and... 
came out of the hyperbolic time chamber, a Green Knight Grandmaster. So here we are. Here we are. So, and uh, you know what? I was going to ask you how you came to be uh, playing Grey Knights. And I want to remind folks listening that this is a teams event. You were playing at a teams event, not a singles event. So uh, one of the things you're talking about cycling between all of these armies is because you're playing in a team where pretty much everyone else, we're talking John Lennon, we're talking... uh, Brad Chester, pretty much everyone else kind of had a, had a set army that they were good to go with. Siegs has his admech, and that, that kind of left you in a spot where you're like, well, man, what do I take? So you you landed on Grey Knights. Why don't you why don't you run us through the list? I guess we'll just kick straight into it now, and then we can start talking about it. Yeah, sure thing. So the list I'm I'm going to talk about today is is slightly different from the one I played in the Las Vegas team tournament, and they're functionally the same. It's it's the core is all there. I just changed some stuff around because I think this one's a little more refined. But anyways. It is a Sword Brethren patrol detachment with a Grand Master Dread Knight with a Psy Cannon Teleport Homer. Uh, this guy, I give him the Gem of Inoctu and the Sigil of Ex- Exigence. That's plus two to cast on a power. And uh, once per game, I get to teleport when you uh, target him with a shooting attack. Then I have a Librarian, who's my Warlord. He's got the Unyielding Anvil Warlord trait, which is basically rights of war. It's an aura of objective secured. And then also the Psychic Epitome Warlord trait, so his uh, spells do an extra mortal. Then he's got all the mortal wound powers. Um, so he's just pooping mortals out of here. Then we got a unit of five strikes and two more Dread Knights with uh, silencers and side cannons, all that good stuff. Um, then we have a Prussian Brotherhood Outrider. So this is another Grandmaster Dread Knight and our second one here with a side cannon silencer. And I'm buying teleport armors for everything. Um, he's got Servant of the Throne, which is once per game three at Binville. And then a tech marine with the warlord trait from the Prussian brother and divination to get me CP back every turn and noble death for which is another once per game obsec aura. Um, he has also got the Aetheric conduit relic for a flat three heal. He can heal up all my dread knights, which is cool. Then we got three units of ten interceptors, thirty interceptors total. They almost always combat squad uh, for six units of five functionally. Uh, they have a mix of halberds and swords, mostly halberds. And then uh, one more Dread Knight to run it out. So five Dread Knights, 30 Interceptors, five Strikes, and some characters to flesh it out. So many Dread Knights. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun army to play. It really is. Yeah, yeah. So, John, uh, look, let's, let's throw it over to you, man. Let's kick it off with some, some questions. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to start off by uh, just, I guess, explaining or maybe having Nick explain how this army works on the tabletop. Uh, for someone who maybe hasn't played against Grey Knights, if they just kind of walk up to him, they're like, so what does this army do? What's that elevator pitch? Like, what is, what is the army supposed to do on the tabletop? How does it play? What does it look like? So that's a great question. It's a, it's a very elite army. There's 35 marine bodies and five dread knights. Think of a dread knight a lot like a dread knot. Uh, it's slightly different as a base stat line. It's only toughened six as opposed to toughened seven. It's not minus one damage. Instead, it's up to 13 wounds. So it can, it's just tankier than most dread knots, same as Redemptor. It's got uh, a two-up armor instead of a three-up and a four-up anvil. So it's a different kind of durability, but very similar profile. From a firepower perspective, the way mine are kitted, heavy silencer, uh, heavy side cannon, it's going to shoot 12 shots, strength 5 AP1, and uh, and one damage. And then six shots, strength 8 AP2, and two damage. Um, That's at 24 inches. So across my army, if you're getting shot at 24 inches across all my Dread Knights, it's, I pump out 60 shots, strength 5 AP 1, 1 damage, and 30 shots, strength 8 AP 2, 2 damage. So it's just a lot of decent quality firepower coming out of here. And then all the interceptors, I compared them to like Vanguard Vets. So imagine I have just 6 units of 5 Vanguard Vets running around. Instead of Lightning Claw and Storm Shield, they have 
uh, Halberds and Stormbolters, which are Strain 6, AP2, 2 damage in close combat, and Stormbolters are Stormbolters. So um, it plays a lot like modern Space Marine armies with a lot of Dreadnoughts moving around and, and Vanguard Vets, which are very common builds. The, the key differences are that I have Psychic Powers and I teleport, and that's really where we get funky and cool. Yeah, it really sounds like uh, you're... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it really sounds like you're kind of doubling down on uh, all of that weight of fire. You know, you mentioned, you know, instead of a storm shield, everyone's got a storm bolter. And then uh, that is quite a lot of weight of fire on the on the Dread Knights. But uh, some of it's strength eight. So, you know, that little bit of multi-damage that they have does count. And, uh, you know, with that many bullets, I can see how you can drag down even some of the tougher tanks. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like uh, it. You know, you're talking about the comparison to dreadnoughts. One of the one of the problems, and again, I'm not playing at your level, but the problems I face with taking things like redemptors at the moment, you're coming up against, you know, a lot of firepower that can just pop them. That four up involve. How important is that when you're when you're building your list to have that element of durability in there? Uh, I mean, it's pretty huge. You, you got to have something. I think with, if you're not if you don't have an invul in your tank these days, you're just asking to be killed. You just you can't be a invested in tank you could be like a rhino because who cares what happens to a rhino or something along those lines but uh any credible tanks kind of need an invul at this point because there's cogni's last cannons out there there's dark lances out there it's a scary world yeah. and uh we'll get most of that in the matchups in part two but uh the, the army is built on its not just its durability but its ability to kind of pick and choose where the battle happens but i guess we'll get to that as we get to that yeah, I feel like, uh, so, you know, I've kind of made this comparison uh, before when people ask me about Grey Knights. Uh, for playing against Grey Knights, I feel like it's just like playing against Space Marines, except they have a little bit less stuff and they're somehow everywhere at once. It almost feels like you're playing whack-a-mole with Grey Knights. Uh, I know they have a lot of different mobility tricks. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, every unit in your army could deep strike if it chose to. Then um, you've got, of course, different ways to redeploy. You've got all these teleport homers. Uh it, it honestly, you know, whenever I play against Grey Knights, it's just like a little bit less space marines than normal, but man, they could be everywhere and I have to plan like they're everywhere. Uh, do you want to kind of break down first just like the mobility of the list and all the different tricks it has there? Absolutely. So the the first thing to realize is that all the interceptors are six units of five after a combat squad. They just move 12 inches. They don't technically have fly. They can't charge flyers or or do certain things, but more or less, they have fly. They move over terrain vertically as if it's not there, and they move over models as if they're not there. They just can't end with an inch move. So, like the, the Vanguard vet comparison is really apt because they they are space rings that move twelve inches and through stuff and punch stuff in close combat pretty well. And then, so that that in that in themselves is already pretty mobile. But then everything in the army can deep strike as far as the infantry goes. So I often squads will I oftentimes will deep strike anywhere between two and four units just based on how I feel that game. Keep people on their toes, make them scream. Um, and, and even if I just deep strike back in my own deployments on turn three, it's like I don't need to use all my units all the time in most games. So I find that to be pretty useful. The Dread Knights, uh, I think all but one of them have personal teleport homers in this list, personal teleporters. What that does is it lets me do two CP shunt stratagem. So I basically just pick up a Dread Knight in my moon phase and just re-deep strike him anywhere I want, nine inches away from the enemy, and each one can do it once per game. So you can... A lot of times, I'll create two different fronts on my army. I'll have like um, a Grandmaster and two Dread Knights on one side, and a bunch of Interceptors hanging around. And then on another side, I'll have Grandmaster, Dread Knight, and a bunch of Interceptors hanging around. And all of a sudden, my opponent might start to shift one way or the other to try to to deal with half my army instead of all of my army. And then I can just redeploy two of the Dread Knights. And one of them is with that 2CP Shun Stratagem, and another one is with a psychic power called Gate of Infinity. 
Uh, it goes off on a seven, but there's like a million different ways I can make one spell or two spells really reliable every turn. So and if it's a big turn, I can make sure gate goes off. So I redeploy a Dread Knight with Shunt, redeploy a Dread Knight with Gate. And now instead of having like a 3-2 split on my Dread Knights across the flanks, one flank might just get all five and completely overwhelm somebody out of nowhere. And then um, the last bit to it is, of course, the Grandmaster with the Sigil of Exigence. Exigence? Whatever. Um, that's basically whenever you target him with a shooting attack once per game, I can just pick him up and re-deep strike him. So that can be really cool. Um, because he's deep striking oftentimes in the middle of your opponent's turn, and people are typically uh, not ready for that, even if they you can tell them. I, I make a point to tell my opponent about this. But it's just something It's so out of character for people to be screening about and thinking about. It's easy to make mistakes against. Can I, um, can I go back one step, guys? Just, uh, j- uh, Nick, with all the movement available and all the, the, the jank to kind of teleport and move things around and bump different units to different places... Could we go back one step and just you're thinking in terms of building the list and the secondaries that you're looking at. Do you start with looking at the secondaries uh, and go, okay, what can what can I, what do I want to achieve? What am I going to get the most points out of? And then plug units in to get it. Or do you look at an army that's going to do a lot of damage and then look at the secondaries that can achieve once you've got your list? Which order do you go in and what have you gone for? Steve, I think that's a fantastic question because this army is super overwhelming with all its different uh, ways to move around and teleport, and and you got to get down to all of it is a means to end for how you win the game, which is scoring more points than your opponent in the mission. So I absolutely start with my secondaries and start with start from the reverse, like how do I score my points, and then the units come to help me score my points. So the interesting thing about Grey Knights, and this is what Sieg's drilled into me, lesson number one in the Sieg's training boot camp. Um, Grey Knights don't have to do anything. And I don't know if you guys know this about me personally, but I love doing nothing when it comes to 40k. So um, that appealed to me quite a lot. Let me explain that for a second. So they have this wonderful secondary called Purifying Ritual, which basically in, in layman's terms is a free 15 points in most missions. But basically you just cast a psychic action on an objective. Uh, it goes off on a 5 you walk up to an objective with a unit and just roll two dice and you get a five or more and you just get it off. And if you do one objective, it's one point. If you do two objectives, it's two points. Three objectives is four points. And four or more objectives is six points. Caps at 15. And you can try this every turn with every unit in your army if you want. Um, you can even try the same objective multiple times. If you have three or four units just dogpiled up onto an objective, first one failed, second one failed, third one succeeds. We got this one. It's so easy. So that's really good because you just have 15 points coming in over there. You can always pretty much do re- retrieve Octarius data with this list as a default, regardless of uh, you know where your opponent's army typically or, or what mission it is. And that's because you can use the shunt stratagem not only on your Dread Knights, but also on all your interceptors. So not only can you use the psychic power gate to get something over, you can also just 2CP pick a unit up on turn 4, turn 5, get it far across the table, uh, where your opponent no longer has screens because the game is ending and no one has stuff left. Um, and then just finish out your Retrieve Octarius data there. So you can typically get a 12 as long as you plan for it on that one. And then this army is really good at Stranglehold also. Um, the way Stranglehold changed to allow you from domination, where it allows you to now hold three objectives and just more than your opponent to score it, basically. Um, in, in the Las Vegas team format, it was almost an auto-take because um, I could player place terrain and put 
one objective forcibly in the open, and then I just control three and then shoot them off the one in the open because I shoot a lot uh, every turn in repetition. But um, in, in most formats, I imagine string that's a pretty replicatable tactic to just sit on some side and shoot somebody off in one. You could take engage in some scenarios a lot too. You have a lot of units too. Do you miss having cheap garbage units just to be able to throw away for things like rotting, for things like uh, engage on all fronts? I know as a Space Wolves player, you've got to include some just cheap rubbish to throw out there to get those things. In, a, in an army like this, do you miss having that or is it just not that important for you? No, it is. It is. This was, believe me, that's a real consideration and it's something I wrestle with with this army a lot. I've had, I played versions of this army that have uh, three units of four servitors in them to help me with that, that I need stuff problem. Yeah. And then this version has none, of course. So I've kind of decided that all the iterations of other stuff I could take over um, my options here. So if you look at my list, it's two Grand Knight Dread, two Dread, Grandmaster Dread Knights. Uh, and three Dread Knights. There's not really much wiggle room on those. You could mess around with the relics and warlord traits and and upgrades I bought them, but they're pretty bare bones as far as what I want them to do. My Librarian and my Tech Marine are pretty much as cheap as they get. 30 Interceptors and 5 Strikes. There are no upgrades there. So to, to get points back in my list for small units, you have to cut 5 Interceptors or an entire Dread Knight. And like, I don't want that much crap, you know? Like, every time I've tried to cut 120 points to get 30 points of servitors and fill the 90 with other useful stuff, it, it, that whole package, I'd, I'd rather just have the five interceptors. Can't but, I bl- blame you on that one. Um, I really like, I like any list that has mobility, you know, the ability to play the mission, that unique, you know, way to score objectives that Granites have because they have access to a psychic secondary, which is relatively rare right now for a lot of armies. Um... I think uh, I think my my question would be actually um, I was obviously since we were on the same team for the Las Vegas teams uh, I was you know watching and observing the the process we were getting ready for um, my actual question for you is that the strategy that you've described uh, it's great I know that it's worked I've played against it uh, Nick has won that game so uh, I I don't have too much to stand on when it comes to you know saying you're wrong but also I kind of want to ask when we were getting ready for that event. We knew what missions were being played. And do you ever worry about Grey Knights on, or have you even practiced them on, maybe some of the more obscure missions where I think that that works, you know, really well on like the retrievals, the sweeping clears, kind of those missions that you see at almost every tournament. Uh, Do you have any strong feelings on if that strategy would work in the scouring where you kind of just have to get in the middle or maybe um, on overrun where sitting on your side of the board may actually only be worth five points? Well, I think it's not so much... I don't think the mission matters to Green Knights that much, which I think is really cool. Uh, Battle Lines has been my most challenging so far, but I don't expect the ones you just mentioned that are kind of not as con, but, you know, be prepared. It's overrun scouring. Um, those two... My army can box. You know, 30 Interceptors and 5 Dread Knights, if we boil it down, is 30 Vanguard Vets and 5 Dread Knots. That is... That's no problem fighting in the middle of the board, especially with two obsec auras. Very few armies want to just beat me up in a straight fight like that. So if push comes to shove, I'm not afraid to just get down and dirty in the scouring. Um, I think also um, Dawn of War, that long style deployment, is my strongest. And what's really interesting is pretty much every other competitive list in the game right now, like very like internet listy, viable build thing, 
um, that I can think of really appreciates Hammer and Anvil or or Search and Destroy, those deployments where you get the the more depth to your deployment zone. Whereas my Grey Knights actually prefer more shallowness. They want us to be to you. I want you to not be able to hide from my twenty four to thirty inch guns, and I want to be able to go make the most use of my teleporting capabilities, which is swinging um, sixty inches from the hard left where you're not screening to six inches to the hard right where you're not screening. Whereas in like Hammer and Anvil, you have a smaller frontage. So it's easier to screen the whole front out, and I can do less wild swings with my teleportation. So uh, Dawn of War, I, I often try to turn games like Vanguard and Search and Destroy into Dawn of War. Anything like Overrun that is not Dawn of War by nature, I think I'm naturally advantaged in. And then you know, scouring would be difficult, but push comes to shove, let's fight. It's my plan. You were talking about uh, Nick being, uh, being able to, having the ability to deep strike basically everything, right? So uh, can you talk us through your thinking in terms of, obviously it depends on the army, but if you can give us a couple of typicals, say you're facing a uh, combat-focused army, let's assume the terrain is, is you know, standard-level terrain for a tournament these days, there's, there's a decent amount on the table. Talk us through your thinking, combat army versus, say, a, a big shooting army. Are you deep-striking a lot of stuff? Are you starting on the table? Where do you go with that? Sure. So I, I pretty much always deploy all the five Dread Knights. I'm not even sure if they can deep strike naturally, but I want them on the board. Um, the Interceptors and Strikes is where I get more um, decision points. I combat squad everything, so I have seven units. One of them is kind of slow and crappy. Um, and so the, usually I'll use the Strikes to just sit on my backfield on objective because they're naturally obsec. I don't need to babysit them with my obsec aura, and they can defend themselves. Um, so out of my six remaining units of interceptors, I will determine uh, against a combat army, I'm less likely to deep strike. I might deep strike one unit uh, or two at most, probably. Um, I'd probably deep strike two just to give me play. I, I like deep striking to give me play like that. Uh, very rarely will I deep strike none. I'll cover when. Um, but against most combat armies, I'll, I'll deploy four units plus the strikes plus the dread knights. And that's because if they're going to come to me, the fight's going to get accelerated. We're going to play in those early turns, turns two, there's going to be combat probably, turn three, there's definitely going to be combat. I want my units ready to roll and just getting into combat as counter-charging stuff. I don't want to be trying to hit nine-inch charges to get my counter-defense in. The reason I deep-strike a couple units is because a lot of times against combat armies, sometimes they go very, very forward and they leave their backfield kind of unprotected. So me being Grey Knights, if I naturally have a unit or two in deep-strike, that might be... Not enough to take over an okay defended backfield with like a bunch of intercessors and stuff, but then a Dread Knight shunts over, and my Mortal Wound Librarian gates over, and all of a sudden your backfield is mine, and I've captured four objectives. So it's thinking about those kinds of plays. And if that's not going to be an option, realize it early, bring them in turn two. Against a shooting army, I might take the entire opposite approach. I might figure out exactly the minimum number of interceptors I have to deploy to be able to keep up with my my secondaries and my primaries just hold the objectives, get my psychic rituals off or my purifying flames, whatever they're called. Um, and do, do whatever I need to do, my rods, whatever. And then deep strike as much as I can because I want to play that game in an overwhelming manner where on turn two, I just threat overload my opponent with everything all at once after dodging a turn one shooting phase, which is probably their strongest if they're like a space marine army in Dev Doctrine or an admic army using offensive protocols on turn one, or even defensive protocols. I want to be able to choose which turn to hit them so they're not in their optimal timing. Right. And do you have any any jank to shorten that charge distance, any spells to cast, or any 
relics or anything you can do to to make nine inches less than that for when you redeploy? My, my list doesn't. I've thought about it. There's a warlord trait you can take for plus one to charge. And uh, if you successfully make a charge, then anyone else who charges is also plus one to charge. So you can be rolling a lot of eights, which isn't great, but you start somewhere. Then there's a, a different brethren or brotherhood or whatever. Um, that one's psychic power is reroll charges. So now we're talking eight rerollables. And then there is another one, which I believe, I don't remember what this is. I think it's another psychic power somewhere. But it counts your ones. Oh, no, this is what it is. It counts your, it's your tide. So instead of tide of extra range or tide of casting powers, give you a tide of charging and advancing. So right. this tide is counts your ones and twos as threes for charging. So you could actually get a reliable charge with an eight inch rerollable and your ones and twos count as threes. That's actually not bad at all. But um, I didn't want to go down all of those different ways to make a charge out of reserve. Yeah. Yeah. Roger that. So I actually, you know what? I'm actually really glad you mentioned tides. I wanted to jump on it when you said 24 to 30 inches. Um, I kind of want to talk to you about uh, the choice of tides. Um, so I've played against you, obviously. Um, I've played against Richard's Green Knights, and I've uh, played against uh, Charles at uh, the Las Vegas Team Tournament. So I've actually played against three different Grey Knight players. And the thing that interested me the most about those three games was that all of you did very different things on your tides. Where, um, you know, Nick, uh, I've seen you stay in Tide of Shadows a lot. Uh, a, lo a lot of people really like the Tide of Convergence. I'm kind of curious, when do you find yourself choosing which Tide? You know, which ones are the standouts? Which ones are just never get taken? And do you ever change your Tides in-game? Is that valuable to you? Or do you just kind of make a call pre-game and roll with it? It's a really interesting point. Um, when I learned from Mr. Coach Siegs, he was like, Tide of Convergence all time, every time. And that's very indicative of the style you just identified, John. So um, I started out playing that way. And it was nice because 30 inches lets you just be that much safer from to, to your opponent's shooting. And uh, that's cool. And then uh, when you get in combat, you do the mortals, which is always a nice thing. And it's just it's a generically good tide, so I got no problem with it. Then as I started really grinding games and thinking about every matchup because I'm at this point I'm I have like four or five games of Grey Knights under my belt and I'm going to a major tournament with it at, on a team tournament so I really can't let my team down it's, it's one thing if I mess up for myself but you know I'm not going to let the whole thing down so I'm, I'm thinking through every single matchup and I'm thinking about when are the times where I would want to start the game in Tide of Shadows instead of Tide of Convergence or what are the games where I want to switch into Tides depending and I'm going through it, and I'm going through it, and I'm going through it. And I find it's a really binary thing. There are games where you want to be in Tide of Convergence, um, where basically it's when Tide of Shadows doesn't matter. And when Tide of Shadows does matter, you sit in Tide of Shadows for as long as you can. And you know things like Space Marines are a great example where Tide of Shadows makes a big difference. Because someone packing around a Contemptor Dread in, with AP1 and Dev Doctrine, or three Contemptor Devs with AP1 and Dev Doctrine, can really annihilate your toughness six dread knights. But if you are taking one up saves in light cover against AP1 Contemptor Dreads back to twos, you can really tank a lot of Contemptor Dread before it gets too painful. So um, when you go through all the individual matchups, which is really for part two, that's where the tides, which one matters the most, kind of comes in. Sorry, Nick, can you just, for those folks who uh, haven't got Grey Knights or played against them, uh, for those two particularly, what are the Tide of Convergence and the Tide of Shadows? What do they do? 
Yeah, so tides are like Grey Knights mono faction rule. When you play my whole army is Grey Knights, I get this bonus, much like Space Marines get doctrines and whatever. So um, Tide of Convergence is kind of the offensive one. It basically means all of your Psy weapons, so everything, all of the Dread Knights are equipped, gets an extra 6-inch range. So taking 24 inches to 30 inches is 25% increase, and it's a nice range bracket because 24 inches is the is like a place where you are like chargeable to your opponent typically from fast units. 30 inches, you are just not getting charged by your opponent by anything reasonable. So that's a nice range boost. And then um, it also, all your all your force weapons, which is every weapon in your army in close combat, um, on a six to wound, will do a mortal wound in close combat as well. So you're already very good combat capable, comparable to Vanguard vet units, are now also dealing mortal wounds. So it's just this is a generically good uh, tide. The other option, Tide of Shadows, is the one I find myself going to more and more these days, is if you're further than 12 inches away from the enemy, this is the defensive one, you count as in light cover. So this is a great way to give Dread Knights cover, who would normally never receive cover, like light cover. So they get the one-up saves, which helps against AP1 shooting, AP2 shooting, that kind of stuff. Um... And then if you already receive the benefits of light cover, you now also get dense cover. So all your interceptors, put them in a ruin if you want, and now they're minus one to hit two up save interceptors. Inter yeah. And that's really cool. Yeah, right. Thank you for explaining that. Now I got it. No, yeah, of course. All righty. Um, okay, so I kind of want to... Um, let's see, how do I want to approach this? So we've already kind of talked about uh, you know your basic army how it plays. Uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, how you have this mobility. You're really good at playing the secondaries. Um, I know that was a large part of what, you know, really appealed you with the army. Uh, you liked your psych phase a lot. I have a question. Uh, obviously, I know you well since uh, we live together. You haven't been playing a ton of psychic phase heavy armies recently. Uh, talking about the, the psychic phase with Grey Knights, um, did you have any trouble mastering it when you got started with it? Because, um, you know, as the outside looking in, I thought of Grey Knights as like every army was a psyker and I was getting my sisters ready. And I was like, all right, what am I going to do when I get smited eight times? And, you know, when, when I like get hit by all these mortal wounds. Then when I played against Grey Knights, you know, even before I put in psychic defense, um, I never found that I was just getting obliterated by the mortal wounds of the psychic phase. Instead, their psychic phase felt like it was a little more of a, a buffing, a setting up, a preparing. And, uh, you know, Grey Knights lost their plus one to cast. A lot of people were down on that when the book came out. But my question for you is, how do you feel about the Grey Knight psychic phase in general, and how do you manage it? And then uh, I'm going to ask you uh, after that uh, a little bit about some of the buffs you hand out. Sure. The The Grey Knight psychic phase is really interesting, and you're, you're mostly right. It is a very self-oriented, buffing, kind of make-my-own-plan-work kind of psychic phase instead of doing tons of mortal wounds like Thousand Suns do. Um, I actually, the new version includes a librarian, uh, with the Psychic of Minipini, Warlord Trait, Vortex of Doom, and Purifying Flame. He is there to rein the mortals into the enemy, and we can talk about him in a second. But generally speaking, my my go-tos to the Psychic Phase is I when I start my turn, so before I even move a model, I, I basically plan out my Psychic Phase. Because the Psychic Phase is a huge portion of of movement for me. And, and it basically tells me how tough my units are, where they are, and how much damage I've done to my I'm going to do to my opponent all at the same time. So I need to make sure that my movement phase and all that accounts for the various different ways my psychic phase can go. And 
has fallbacks for if certain spells fail. It's it's not it, it takes practice. And thankfully I've been playing psychic armies for multiple editions, so I picked it up pretty quickly. But um there's a super high skill ceiling to it. I certainly haven't hit it, but um uh there's a lot of room for error and a lot of room for improvement with the Green Knight Psychic phase for newer players. So I like to start it off keeping it simple with my tech marine just casting the plus one CP uh power. Um, if I get it, that means I'm probably going to spend an extra CP this psychic phase to make sure a power goes off or not and not feel as bad about it. And if I don't get it, sad face, let's move on. Then I'll do all my psychic ritualing or whatever it's called. I never remember where I'll typically just have interceptors or dread knights go around the table on each objective that I'm on, see how many points I get on that secondary. And I, I don't generally reroll it unless I'm going to go from two objectives to three objectives. Uh, or four, three objectives to four objectives, because that's a two-point swing. And if I have CP floating around, because your CP are super valuable in this army, so you don't want to spend them on just re-rolling psychic powers, unless it's a big swing. Um, so after that, that's when we get into the interesting plays. So Sanctuary, I'll usually just cast Sanctuary onto a unit of five interceptors that are going to do something brave for a turn and make them take more effort for my opponent to kill. It's not critical in this list. Gate is really what this army relies on, gate and shunting. So I need to make sure that if I'm... I, I like to do one of two things. I like to gate either aggressively or I like to gate defensively. So if I'm grading aggressively, I typically don't like to rely on it. But if I do rely on it, I'll use a 3d6, pick the two eyes uh, to get it off. I also have the gem of Inoctu on one of my Dread Knights. He's got that's a plus two to cast once per game. So that is a great thing to use on a gate to make sure you get this gate off. Because you don't want to be not where you plan to be. That's a terrible place to find yourself. Um, so there's a few things you can do in the psychic phase as well. You can shoot in the psychic phase with your interceptors. They have a spell. It's kind of like fire and fade. You just shoot in the middle of the psychic phase. Um, as soon as you cast the power, the unit shoots. And then you move the unit, so you can use this to move backwards, you can move this to move forwards. It's really useful for utility. Can't charge afterwards, but still super useful to just use in pocket situations. And then because you're shooting in the psychic phase, imagine the ramifications. You can clear a screen in the psychic phase. Your opponent thought he was safe from all your deep strikers. Now he's not. Now you gate into that hole with an entire Dread Knight. Now that Dread Knight has line of sight to all kinds of stuff. It, it really cascades. And then your Librarian... He also does a ton of mortal wound output in the psychic phase. So the way he works, I'll, I generally like to deep strike him in because I find he only moves five inches and wandering around the Dread Knight party that's teleporting super fast. This guy is kind of slow. So I deep strike him in usually on turn two. And I use him to do a lot of mortal wounds aggressively. So he's got the psychic epitome warlord trait, which means uh, everything I do does one extra mortal when I cast the power. So he casts two powers. He knows Smite, Vortex, and Purifying Flame. So if I'm going for... I can spend anywhere between one and three CP to this guy, depending on how many mortals I want to do. For just one CP, I mean, for zero CP, you could do this, but it's just unreliable. For one CP, it becomes reliable. You get your Smite off, and you get Vortex of Doom off. That's just two spells you can cast as soon as you show up. Vortex goes off on a 7, which is why I like to spend the CP on 3d6 to make sure it all just goes off and I'm happy about it. And then 
Uh, Vortex is 2d3 mortals plus one from the gem of a Noctu, and then everything within three inches takes one mortal wound also. I, I look at that as bonus damage. I just focus on the average of five mortals I'm doing to the thing right in front of me. Then I cast Smite, and you know it goes off on a five, but now it's five, a three, six, pick the two high. So it's not even inconceivable. You roll an 11 and get a super Smite. But normal Smite goes off, and then it's d3 plus one mortals. So now we're averaging eight mortal wounds to the thing right in front of me. Which is really good because most things that are screening have anywhere between five and ten mortal ten wounds. So doing eight right off the bat, your interceptors can shoot away the the last two with their storm bolters in the psychic phase, and now there's no more screen. So that's cool. Um, if you want to spend more CP for your librarian, you can cast an extra power and you can increase the range of that power. This will let you get purifying flame off, which um, is another power like Smite, where if you cast it on, I believe, a ten or higher, maybe it's eleven or higher. Then it does an additional uh, flat three mortal wounds, or some additional D three mortal wounds. But normally it does three mortal wounds straight into the closest unit with psychic capital meet. It'd be four. So now we are averaging twelve mortal wounds to the thing right in front of me, and it's just gone for three CP. So built in a lot of mortals. It's also about getting your psychic powers off while building in backups and managing your gate of infinities. If you're if you're using a lot of your psychic uh, spells to do buffing, how important is first turn, second turn? Um, I find it's not generally too important, save for a few matchups and specific missions, um, and that's because I like to hide the army really defensively turn one because it can redeploy itself so quickly with gate right. and shunt and all that. There's no reason to deploy it aggressively. Where if you go second, you just get shot and you get damaged a lot. I deploy super defensive pretty much every time. Um, if I win the roll for first turn, I adjust accordingly. If I go second, I let my opponent do his thing and then react accordingly. And if I can ask one more, the, how worried are you then about the opponent's secondary with, with Thousand Suns and Grey Knights kind of suddenly strong again? A lot of, say, for example, Space Marine Armies. I know we get into specific matchups in part two. want to encourage everybody to sign up for that so we can really get into the, the nitty-gritty of some of this stuff. But, you know, the, the secondary that if I don't take a cycle, I can then just score points by killing your stuff. Uh, it, have you? Did you find that was a problem, or are you not worried about that oh, at all? Oh, yeah. This, this thing sucks, Steve. This, <laughs> I, I hate this thing. <laughs> it's like, I can't be mad about it because I have um, Purifying Flame, which is like a free 15 points, so my opponent gets a free 15 for playing against me. Fair is fair. I get it. Um, it's actually really nice. Uh, not nice. I mean, it sucks, but like, it's it's interesting. So here's here's how it helps me in a way, or at least that's how I can spin zone it. The the strategy that granted if we get back to its core thing is to kind of not play with your opponent, right? I, I choose stranglehold, I want to choose purifying ritual, and I want to choose rods. That's my go-to's. And I can do all of those secondaries without really interacting with my opponent. I'm gonna sit on my side, hold my objectives, shoot you off one of yours for a stranglehold. I'm just gonna walk around, cast powers for psychic ritual. And for retrieve data, I got the two quarters I started in really easy. And then I just kind of clear a hole and shunt at some point and do that pretty independently of you. It turns four and five. So if you take aboard the witch, which is the one where you get points for killing my army, which everyone takes and it sucks, um, it really puts the onus on you more so than I'm already doing. Like my army is already not interacting with you, which makes you want to interact with me. It's the give and flow, the ebb and take of 40K. But now you've taken a secondary where you really want to interact with me. You want to come kill me to get your points. So when you come into the Grey Knight 
army, that's when I'm happiest because you just, I'm not that fast. I'm like, I'm not slow, but I'm not fast. Move nine, move 12. So I'm not like move 12 advance and charge like some people. Dark Elder move 26 inches these days. I'd like move a thousand inches. You know, they just go where they want. I'm not that fast. So I need to get them to come into the lion's den so I can pounce. I can't just cross the table the old fashioned way like some of these kids. So it kind of plays into itself like that. I love it. Like some of these kids, these Johnny come lately's. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I like it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, again, I have the uh, the benefit, you know, or the downside of playing with Nick uh, quite frequently. So I can see how this army plays so well, this play style you're describing. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I think that you and I both already know this, but I kind of want to ask for the audience. Um Damage output-wise, you've talked about Mortal Wounds, how uh, you have that librarian in there specifically so that you can, you know, just put a brick of hurt on someone if you need to in that one specific spot. Um, my real question is, uh, damage across the board from the whole army, um, because you have so few data sheets, I always worry that if I only have one type of gun or one type of combat, I'll eventually run into the person that it doesn't work against. Where, you know, we're not going to go too deep into any specific matchup, but uh, you have a lot of AP dash and AP one on your guns, and maybe a little bit of AP two. And uh, do you ever worry at all about maybe your guns aren't going to solve a particular nut, or do you yeah. just kind of count on your mortal wounds and the rest of it to carry the slack? No, it's it's a big problem um, in certain matchups. Like people, there is ignores AP one and AP two in the game out there, and some people have it in mass, and some people have it on really powerful units like Ranger bricks in the odd mech match. So, um. I one in my units of ten interceptors has swords because they're AP three. Actually, this is an attempt to solve this problem. It is so half-assed. I can't even tell you. Um, it has never worked. <laughs> um, so we need to rethink this. My librarian was actually a sort of response to it because um, we half-assed the sword, so we're gonna half-ass the rest of this response. Librarian is in part there to help deal with this stuff because if I can't just shoot you away, I can mortal wound you away. Now, this has obviously got the problems like, you know, I have to get the librarian to be closest to the thing I actually want to smite away. But one problem at a time, ladies and gentlemen. But no, no, it's a real problem. Gotcha. Um, and I actually did want to talk to you about, uh, you know, some of your damage output. Just because it hadn't men been mentioned yet, um, there, I know there's a couple different buffs that you can put on the shooting of your Dreadnoughts. Um, looking at a list, anything that has five Dreadnoughts, Dreadnoughts, uh, you know, I think I can pretty safely assume that they're an integral part of your strategy. Uh, what are the different ways you can improve their damage output at range? I know that there's spells, stratagems, and all kinds of things. You know, I'm actually asking selfishly here because I can never keep track of it myself. Uh, <laughs> and I, I kind of want to figure it out before we play soon. Yeah, for sure. So I'm giving you all my secrets before Crucible, I see. Um, the... The Dread Knights are interesting because they you can spend a lot of your CP and a lot of your efforts to make the Dread Knights super powerful, or you could just not and let them be natively decent. Um, their base guns are 12 shots, strength 5, AP 1, and 1 damage, and 6 shots, strength 8, AP 2, and 2 damage. So each one fires 18 shots. For 1 CP, you can buff one of them pretty well. Um, you can make... You can use a strat to give plus one strength and plus one AP, taking the 12 shots up to strength six and AP two, and the six shots up to strength nine and AP three for some real punch. Um, you can use a one CP strat on any of the Prescient Brotherhood Dread Knights. So I have a Grandmaster and a Dread Knight in there. 
Um, they can use that strat to reroll ones to hit, reroll ones to wound. So a Grandmaster Dread Knight hits on twos, rerolling ones now, and then potentially is that plus one strength, strength six, and strength nine with extra AP and rerolling ones to wound. Then we have a couple more spells. The Sword Brethren Patrol, their spell is you pick an enemy unit, and then if the spell goes off, all of your vehicles, so your Dread Knights, um, wound at plus one against that. So now we got all of my Dread Knights are plus one to wound against one specific unit. Usually, that's all I need to cast. Um, all this other stuff I'm telling you is just for completion's sake. Um, and I'll use these strats you know, here and there. Sometimes you want to be AP3 for, to get past those ignoring AP2 uh, units. So getting to AP3 is really useful on that, for that strat. But generally speaking, if I cast plus one to wound onto a tank or something or a big scary thing, and then I shoot it with three Dread Knights with plus one to wound, the volume with hitting on twos and rerolling ones and then plus one to wound, because the tech meme will also give one of them plus one to wound, plus one to hit. It's just too much. Like I'll just kill whatever that is. Unless they're taking two up saves from it, which you can get to if you're just, you know, sitting in cover with storm shields for a zero up or something, or uh, if you're ignoring AP, of course. And then the last thing I can do is Empiric Amplification, which is another spell, which is only 12 inches. So this is when I'm doing this, I almost never do this actually. Uh, I would typically put a Dread Knight out there, cast a spell, then gate him out of there back to safety. It's it's a lot to get plus one damage off. Um, and there's a lot of minus one damage in the game, so I really don't cast a spell much because it just makes all my one damage shots still one damage. But um, it is good to keep in mind, and I took it because sometimes something needs to die. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I was thinking about your army, and it sounded like a lot of, you know, damage one and two. And, you know, I always think in my head, like, you know, if it's only damage two, then, then I think my Dreadnoughts can take this, right? You know, I'll just put my Redemptors on the line, but... uh. Yeah, you know, when you mention wounding me on twos, I, I feel a little bit worse about Odoli being one damage. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I volume most of my problems away pretty effectively. I In, in the Las Vegas teams, we paired me into uh, uh, pretty much your Ultramarineless John, which is like six Dreadnoughts and two Invictors and all kinds of goodness. And I very system systematically killed like two Dreadnoughts a turn or two vehicles that turn just via volume and, and damage, a little bit of psychic help, and that was that. Well, that's more than I want you to kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one wants to lose two Dreadnoughts a turn, man. They cost points. They do. That's why they're so fun to kill. <laughs> it takes a load off your shoulders every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so listen, volume is, volume is a big deal, right, in the game at the moment as well, with uh, even things... Um, as we mentioned before, a lot of things having invols available. There, there's a lot of uh, four up, five up invols around. So, the the melters, the las cannons, those sorts of things, which which are great uh, for certain things. But volume is what you need to to get rid of all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. De volume volume is the most consistent you can do in 40k. Because if you put like a dark lance in dark Elder, right? It's very binary. It did zero damage. Or it did a lot of damage. It has to hit, it has to wound you to fail your save, and then it does a lot of damage. If one of those things fails, it does zero damage. Volume is very granular. It's, you know, fire a lot of shots, do a little damage. Fire a lot of shots, do a little damage. And over time, you get a very consistent result. And that consistency is really key for performing at the top tables and even getting just to get to the top tables. You have to win a lot of games to get there. So. Listen, volume consistency. I know that when when you coach people, you talk about uh, not relying on dice. It's a big thing for you, and I know, and probably for John as well. You, 
you don't want to be in a position where you're relying on dice. So if you're talking about an army that relies pretty heavily on the psychic phase, uh, are you you're okay with that? You're okay with perils maybe happening or spells not going off, spells that you really need not going off? I know you've got stuff in there that can kind of help, but um, have you found when you're playing you your games that your yeah. expectations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I if you expect every spell to go off because every spell is a five, six, or seven, and you know you should always pass five, sixes, and sevens, you, that's not building in for failure. You're like, all right, a CP reroll, that's fine, but you have nine spells to cast. What happens when you fail two? So, and you can still fail spell to CP reroll. So, I I really only count on. Um, one, two spells at most going off in a psychic phase. Um, when I cast a spell with 3d6, pick the two highest, I'm pretty much relying on that going off. Um, or it's because at that point, I'm willing to put a CP reroll into it. Um, there, there's been times where I've used the gem of a Noctu on a spell to get plus two to cast, and then also done 3d6, pick the two highest, because it's game-ending if it fails. And that's not letting dice bone you. You have to just make sure you you put your fail-safes in, you simplify your plan down to its bare fundamentals, down to what needs to go off, you make sure that goes off, and everything else you do, you, you let it happen or it doesn't happen, and you move on with your life. Right. So it sounds like, from a layman's point of view, that the plan, and you mentioned this right at the start, Nick, is is do nothing as much as possible, interact as little as you can with the opponent's army, deny them the opportunity to score points off you while you wander around scoring points where you need to. But And you've got your uh, purifying ritual where, you, where you're guaranteed your 15. And for the others, you've just got to do the minimum you can do to earn points and pick off units and and uh, interact as little as possible. Is that kind of the 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 overall game plan in general? I would phrase that a tiny bit differently, just to to be correct about it. The I would say do as minimum as possible for sure. Force your opponent to to put the onus on him to start being the one to do something. When you're doing your own thing on your side of the board, scoring a lot of points, your opponent has to do something about it. it it's not that your goal is to simply do nothing, and that's the end state. Your opponent's going to do something about it. And then when he does, it's about how you respond. Because what you can do to respond is teleport to extreme angles of line of sight where you can kill him and kill a unit or two of his, and then he can't just move back and shoot you in response. Especially when one of your Grandmasters teleports, the other one gets a three-up invul, five interceptors are move-blocking you after doing a fire and fade play. It's a lot of different moving parts you put together to create... Uh, kind of like a Venus flytrap, basically. So you you sit there existing, and then your opponent makes a move, and then you've come in and, and close upon him. Um, so you want to create either two board states, one where you're sitting there on your ass doing nothing, but still winning. And if your opponent just accepts that board state, fine, you'll win 90 to 85, and that's that's perfectly good with you. And if your opponent tries to do something to break that that default board state of you are winning this game, that's when you you need to use all your tools to attack effectively. Right. And how important is this um, purifying ritual just in terms of there are a bunch of armies out there now that, that pretty much start the game with a guaranteed 15-point secondary. There's heaps of them uh, already with their books that have got these great secondaries. So having one in your army, how important is that going into a game, knowing that you really only need to pick two? It's still huge because it's in a different category, which most player, which most armies don't have. So, um, 
before we even get into codexes like Space Marines or Admech or Dark Eldar or anything like that, and we just talk about the core rulebook secondaries, if you're if you're to pick the ones that you can do autonomously regardless of your opponent, it's going to be the Battlefield Supremacy category. It's going to be to the last because you can build that into your list, and it's going to be Retrieve Octarius Data. You might, if your army is Thousand Suns or Grey Knights or something, you might try to do a Psychic one, but for most players, those are your three trees. So then... All these new codexes come out, Death Guard, Grey Knights, or not Grey Knights, but Death Guard, Dark Angels, Space Marines, Admech, Drakari, whatever. They all release these secondaries, and yeah, they have great codex secondaries. Dark Elder, I've heard the Prey, Admech have Eradication of Flesh. But these are in the categories that you are already going to score if you wanted to. Eradication of Flesh and Oath of the Moment replaced to the last. You could score that just by building your army differently. Um... Heard the Prey replaces Engage in All Fronts and Strangle. Dark Eldar score 15 in that category one of a hundred different ways. It doesn't matter that they do it this way. Grey Knights get theirs in the Psychic Secondary category. So this means I can still do all those autonomous ones from the generic rulebook and keep my 15 in the bank, which is actually a leg up that's relevant. I, I got to apologize to John. I said to, this is before we started recording, I said to my co-host here, John Lennon. Listen, I'm going to introduce you, and then I'll shut up and you ask all the questions. But I keep, I keep stomping on you with questions, man. I'm sorry. I'm now going to shut up, and you, you lead us out with a, with whatever questions you've got left. No, no, Steve. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I, I really enjoy hearing your perspective. So uh, please ask away if you have them. Um, I suppose my next one, uh, my next one for Nick is, uh, you've got this very passive play style. Uh, you're really good at it. Um, you know, this might actually be redundant with what I asked before, but uh, you mentioned that some other armies also have secondaries that let them sit there and score. Um, are you comfortable with uh, your ability to break the stalemate? You know, uh, again, I'll use a specific example. Um, are you, you set, said you can just sit there and get your 95 points. You're not the only army that can do it. And, uh, you know, we actually had a, a Warham game recently uh, on our website where the game actually ended in a 95-95 tie because you kind of both took that passive approach, and uh, I don't think either of you quite cracked the nut by the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a that was a really interesting game. Zeke's and I played that was the ninety five ninety five tie. It's in our warm if anyone wants to check it out um, for personal for subscriptions. But that's super rare, right? I mean, that's the first ninety five ninety five tie I've ever gotten. Um, other scenarios where the other person is trying to stalemate me out and and beat me that way. Generally speaking, I feel okay there. Um, because my army is really good at teleporting and redeploying, I can kind of crush a flank faster than they can crush one of my flanks, and I can redefine the flank. So it's really hard to, to, to actually score a 95-95 or, or something close to that where your opponent is actually beating this default score I'm putting up. Um, they have to be a very specific list and a very specific mission for that. I don't even know what that list would look like, to be honest, because I, I have played Dark Angels in certain missions, and like they are the most sit-there-and-score-your-points army I can think of, and I outscored them. So now it has to be a specific mission where they're capable of outscoring me because maybe the mission handed them a secondary, and I don't know. Okay, so maybe more of a problem on paper than it is on the table. Yeah, I haven't found the scenario in real life at all. Right on, okay. All right, well, um, you know, actually, I... Uh... I actually think I might be out of questions there. Um, Nick, uh, did you have anything else about the army you really wanted to uh, to share with us? 
Now, you can check out all of my tomes of knowledge in the librarians of the Grandmasters before me, but I am the one true Grandmaster of the Great Next. <laughs> you know what I love about this podcast? Uh, there is a lot of chat on Facebook and in other places about what's missing from a codex, the downsides. Every week on The Art of War, we talk to a player who has taken an army and, and made it work. You know, we're talking to a, a player who's had success with an army. So we are actively looking for the units, the combos, the strats, the tactics that work. And we're, we're showing people uh, what they are. And it's just uh, fantastic. So guys, unless you've got something else, episode one is done. A great chat, or at least the start of a great chat. It's like this was the first half of the movie. Don't leave the cinema now because you're going to miss the best stuff. If you haven't already, head over to theartofwar40k.com, sign up so you can get the second half of every chat. With over 100 episodes, that's more than 100 hours of content instantly available for $5.95 a month. In the second part of this conversation, John and Nick are going to cover the tactics, the plans against other armies and archetypes. I really want to cover off with uh, John and Nick uh, how you can, if you're not playing Grey Knights, how you can deal with the threat that they bring to the board. Uh, so if you want to, if you play Grey Knights or you want to beat Grey Knights, you need episode two in your life. If you're a subscriber, we are going to see you real soon. If not, for John Lennon and Nick Nanavati, I'm Steve Joel. Thanks so much for listening. This is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com